Thank you for tuning in once again to the 19th episode of the Old Code Podcast. As always, I'm your host, The Professor. Keeping in vain, or in the same vein as my previous couple episodes, talking about cultivation, talking about stewardship, I wanted to start off by giving you uh, giving you today's talk, essentially, and how that ties into what I said previous episode of what is the old code. So if I'm going to caveat this episode or parentheses, brackets, the subtitle of this episode, it's please stop taking pills from strangers. And what do I mean by that? Uh, mostly I mean stop mindlessly accepting narratives which are peddled to you in the forms of well, I don't even know what how many pills there are email anymore. There's the red pill and the blue pill and the black pill and the white pill and all of these different narratives circling around. Now, if you are unfamiliar with these cultural phrases, first of all, they come from the film The Matrix, where the main character is presented with an option. He can either take the blue pill and accept his reality for what it is, or take the red pill and choose to live a life that is other than what he is living. That's the basic metaphor the basic metaphor of the film and I don't want to spoil it for you if you have not already seen the, the movie um, it's a science fiction movie from the late 1990s I believe 1999 or thereabouts um, I liked it, it was a good movie In it, uh, anyway in recent years the manosphere has effectively co-opted these terms so if you are a liberal leaning man or what they would refer to as a beta male you are blue pilled you just live in accordance with the modern image of what it means to be a man and you are feminist or you are any number of derogatory terms that that conservative or red pilled men love to throw around now the red pill is choose to recognize that there is a system in place that is automatically geared against men and masculinization. Uh, It is automatically going to punish you for being a man, and therefore, in order to be properly red-pilled, you effectively have to take a wife, you have to become a patriarch, you have to do X, Y, and Z, you have to start your own business, you have to, I don't know, smoke cigars, uh, do uh, all sort of masculine, manly things, drink whiskey, blah, 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 blah. Um, And then, in recent years, apparently, there's become a term, black-pilled, which is kind of the nihilistic cousin of the red pill community, which is to say that, yes, uh, society needs masculine men, but it's, but the system is automatically rigged against you. And it's even worse if you are not only a man, but an ugly man, because your 
if your job is to take a wife and have children and be functional and be all masculine and manly, then you, you're effectively already 100% excluded from this group if you're ugly, because then you're not receiving any interest from women. This is all... Uh, it's, it's trying to cultivate a particular mentality. Basically, it's nihilism in a sexual ethic. And there's ways that these kind of branch out from their own base presuppositions, from their base assumptions. But these are the ideas. These are the ideas distilled down into an easily swallowable pill, which is either A, you are... In society, you are a someone who accepts liberal ideology and feminism, third-wave feminism in all its forms, is venerable or you are someone who is conservative and therefore you are going to put women in their place and you are going to use an axe at some point in your life because you're a man or and then this is the black pill narrative which is the accepting of the inherent victim status of men in society because they are or because we are a constantly going to be viewed as fodder for culture we are subjected to ridicule and all of the above and i i've spent enough time outlining these principles but really i want to i just want to define these because again each one of these is a quote-unquote pill and that's why I'm telling you, stop accepting pills from strangers. And I would like to reshift this and reform this narrative to help understand, help us all understand, what does it actually look like to function as a... Or why do we look at men and women the way we do in society? And I want to approach that from a historical perspective. So... In pre-modern times, again, we're going back to more 18th, 17th, 18th century, there were distinct gender roles, and I think that that's one of the things that the Red Pill community tries to recapture. Uh, you have, and then again, biblically, what you have is a model of what is I would call mutual submission. Now, the woman submits her will to the man, the man submits his will for the woman. Husband, wife. This is only in the context of husband and wife. The men are then charged to work outside of the home. The women are charged to work inside the home. The meaning of one's life is derived not by one's position necessarily in the family, but within society. If you are single, you're most likely going to get married. If you are married, you're most likely going to have children. These aren't the defining characteristics of the individual, however. It's more so, where do you fall in society? And we can see that in mostly how we view the feudal system. Are you a peasant? Are you a knight? 
Are you a duke? Are you a lord? Are you upper or lower class? That's basically it. Now, again, I don't want to shift this in the narrative of Marx basically saying that all of history is then class struggle. Basically, all of history is the lower class trying to become upper class. It's not what I'm trying to do. I'm simply saying that there's always been a delineation between those who were ruling and those who were ruled. Fair enough. Now, this then shifts in the 18th and 19th century with the advent, well, more so the 19th and 20th century, with the advent of contemporary psychoanalytics and the cultural doing away of Christianity. Now, within the context of Christianity, sexuality has always been a bit of a... It waxes and wanes in view in lieu of how Christianity views sexuality. Um, so if you look at a lot of medieval theologians, if you look at a lot of Augustinian theologians, they're viewing sexuality through the lens of this is something purely carnal and it is, even in some cases, it is still sinful to engage in sexuality no matter what. Um, there's even a story, I'm trying to remember who it is by. I don't have the author off the top of my head, but he was a church, he was a church historian talking about how there was this pastor who had dedicated himself to God and he had been married and his wife had basically said, hey, you're not performing your duties as a husband. And the author claims that then the husband, under the influence of Satan, then performed his duties to his wife, if you understand my euphemistic meaning. So there was always this connotation to to sexuality in that it was a it was always carnally viewed. It was always carnally viewed in the sense that this is now something bodily, it is sinful, which then leads into the Catholic understanding of it is better for a priest to not get married, and then eventually canonizing that to say that a priest cannot get married because it will take away from their relationship to God and to the church. Catholic understanding, the priest is effectively married to the church. Again, nuns are married to Christ. Giving this as an outline so that you can understand the context. That's the pre-modern view of sexuality. It was basically viewed as it's gonna happen, it happens within the context of marriage, if it happens outside of the context of marriage, the child is illegitimate. And I, I, there's, there's barely anything else to say about that. Now, with atheism or an irreligious mentality approaching out of or coming out of society, what you end up seeing is the rise of men like Freud and Adler, where your place in society is a bit more in flux. So how do you define yourself as, as an individual? From this, this is where Adler de determined what he referred to as the power principle, and uh, or Nietzsche first and then Adler 
defines this power principle where it's man's job to accumulate as much power and influence over the course of his life as he possibly can. Freud develops his pleasure principle, which is effectively that all of life is about minimizing pain and maximizing pleasure. But this is primarily manifested in Freud as sexuality. And that's one of the reasons why he, I have read quotes from him talking about how basically every heterosexual platonic relationship you have with a man, if you are a man or if you're a woman, is derived from repressed homosexuality. So he's entirely defining all of human life according to sexuality. So my my interpretation of this is because when you actually boil down a humanistic perspective on the world, an atheistic humanistic perspective, you are an animal and your one job is to procreate. When, uh, when you simplify life to that, all you are then defined by is your sexuality. And that's one of the reasons why we are at the place that we are at today, where it is more important for you to understand someone's sexuality and gender than ideological position. Because in a atheistic humanistic perspective, the one inalienable aspect of yourself is where you fall on the procreation scale. And it's fascinating to see how the church has co-opted this particular ideology where over the past hundred years, we've gone from you can be incredibly effective as a pastor and minister if you are single. And some of the some of the, our greatest theologians were incredibly effective as pastors and teachers before they got married I mean, Calvin and Luther and Edwards, just to name a few, in the Reformed tradition. And I know Luther isn't technically Reformed. He was Luther. He was, Luther. He was a proto-reformer. I digress on that. But the fact of the matter is, is, as a Christian culture, we have adopted this idea that you are not quite bumped up to maximal sanctification or maximal capability of serving your congregation if you are unmarried. Now, I'm speaking as someone who is married. I, you know, I've mentioned my wife a couple times already on this podcast. I am married, and I find it to be an absolute joy. However, I can say that being married, while it has helped me to understand certain aspects of the Christian walk better. There is a profound experience of being able to be wholly dedicated to your ministry that marriage does in fact take away from. You have a first ministry when you are married and that is not the church. It is totally under, and I want to caveat that by saying that your first priority should always be Christ, but your res first responsibility if you become a spouse is no longer to your external ministries, but to your familial ministry. So I mention this 
because for some reason in the church today, we have effectively co-opted this very humanistic, atheistic perspective on you are not nearly as valuable to the church if you are single or unmarried. You are not backed, pumped up to maximum sanctification if you are single. You have less value to counsel or to minister to people if you do not know what it is like to be married. That is a narrative that not many would be willing to admit to, but it's something that have a feeling most singles have experienced. And that's the Christianized version of what we're seeing in the red pill, black pill culture. It's basically saying, I functionally do not have worth unless I am viewed in terms of sexual prospects. And I would say that this doesn't just stem from atheism or a humanistic perspective. This this stems from self-idolatry. Maybe not necessarily in the church because there are a whole lot of Christians who are saying, you know what, I desperately want to experience the joys of marriage within the confines of a godly relationship. But within the culture at large, what I see is a whole host of men who do not desire to love, but to be desired. And the desire to be desired truly is a form of self-idolatry. It's saying, I view myself as someone who is so worthy of regard and admiration and desire that I want that externalized from other people. Or it's born out of, out of insecurity. It's either self-adoration or self-complete insecurity in the sense of you being insecure in your own identity. So, again, stop taking these stupid pills from other people. It's, you, you wouldn't take candy from a stranger, so why are we accepting ideologies so readily? All that to say, I don't want to leave this podcast by just saying, stop doing this. I want to present to you and tie in the understanding of what we've been talking about in previous episodes with cultivation and stewardship. In terms of cultivation and stewardship, we don't just want to view these things inter externally, but we also want to view these things internally. I also want to give you a reason for the internal cultivation to be tied to the external cultivation or stewardship, as it were. If I, as a husband and father, steward myself well, but I do so because I want to worship myself instead of tying it to the fact that I want to steward my family well, then that is a good thing that I'm doing for the wrong reason, and it will show fruit in all of the wrong ways. So, however, for single men or for unmarried men, I want you to stop viewing yourselves in terms of how desirable you are to other people. Because, and this is one of the beautiful aspects of the gospel, is if you are indeed a Christian, and if you are not a Christian, I invite you to learn more about Christianity. 
I invite you to study the gospel. I invite you to come to church, which preaches the word of God. So I, and that's beside the point. But for the Christian young men, stop thinking of yourselves, as, or young women for that matter. Stop thinking of yourselves as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God because you have not experienced marriage. Stop thinking that way. Because the image of God, the image of Christ in us, is not being perfected by our marriages, but in our suffering and in our obedience. Now, marriage gives a distinct context that those things may take place in, but there is no point in scripture that says, if you are married, married or marriageable, you are more Christian or more valuable than the rest of us. The Apostle Paul himself was unmarried, and he was one of the most, if not the most, effective missionary that we have in Christianity. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't want to overstate what he did, but the man was, was prolific in what he did, and he did so because he was unmarried and because he was wholly dedicated to Christ. Now, I want to tie this, I keep on trying to tie this back into stewardship and cultivation. So instead of viewing yourself in terms of, am I attractive to other people? Stop thinking that way. I mean, and I know that this is a lot, but uh, that's a lot to ask, but stop thinking about how other people are going to perceive you. Stop thinking about how other men are going to perceive you. Stop thinking about how women are going to perceive you. Stop all of that. If you stop focusing so much on how other, you think other people are going to perceive you, you're going to start to realize that the idolatry of other people's opinions, sexual or otherwise, is actually an idolatry of self. And we don't ever want to become idols to ourselves. What we want to do is we want to make ourselves into functional and holy individuals. Granted, we recognize that it is God who does the growing and it's God who does the sanctifying. However, this does not change the fact that we have a responsibility to cultivate ourselves. Now, first thing that I usually always try to advise young men to do is find something that you can get good at find a trade or a skill or something that is that fascinates you don't just think of these things as skills think of these as ways to cultivate yourself so uh tim ferris did an excellent job presenting this premise to me in a in a ted talk from 2000 and so in this TED talk, Tim Ferriss talks about how the, the cultivation of certain skills actually lends itself to the cultivation of other skills. And that's one of the things that I have very deeply enjoyed about learning a very broad number of topics. Uh, you start to see overlap on certain ideas. Now, again, I'm getting, I want to get to the point of direct application in all of this that it helps you say okay 
I know I need to be cultivating myself. I know I shouldn't be defining myself simply by what other people think of me. Really, and what am I supposed to do next? So, you're not just cultivating yourself, and I've already said this to some degree or another, but you're not just cultivating yourself because you want to be any particular thing. You're cultivating yourself because you want to be able to do something which is ultimately, I would say, for us Christians, our definition of what we ought to be doing in our lives hinges on our understanding that we ought to be glorifying God. For those outside of the church, again, I invite you, really do, I invite you in. But for those who, and you know what, I'm just going to talk to those who share a similar faith to my own, or the same faith as my own. Your definition of functionality and where you are driving toward should be effectively twofold. Is if you were to look at yourself from somebody else's vantage point, you look at that person and go, I admire that person. I admire what they're driving toward and I admire what, how they're doing it. I admire how they carry themselves. This helps give us a base reference for viewing ourselves. So instead of stop of thinking about like, oh, what would so-and-so think about? But rather, who do you desire to be? Who stop thinking in terms of, oh, I want to be desired, I want to be X, Y, and Z. No, think in terms of, I want to be stronger. I want to be more patient. I want to be more kind. I want to be more gentle. I want to be more functional. I want to be able to make a really darn good meal. I want to be able to take care of the people that God has put in my life. And I think that that's, if you are going to aim at anything, aim towards that. Because everything else will fall into place. Stop thinking in terms of monetary as well. Monetary will follow. Monetary gain will follow if you become good at good enough at something. So if you're thinking of, oh, I really want to be able to take care of the people who are in my life, obviously do what you got to do to make the money to support your family. But also don't just think of yourself as someone who brings in money. Think of yourself as a fully rounded off person who, a rounded out person who, you know what? I really would like to be able to make my family a nutritious meal. I would really like to be able to change my family, my wife's oil on her car. I'd very much like to be able to be someone who, if my kids want their room to be painted a certain color, I can be that person. Or if I need to remodel a room in my house, I can do that. The goal of functionality as a man is not simply to bring in more money and to have an assortment of vehicles. The litmus test for a functional man is genuinely, can you protect and provide and love on your family in the ways that they need to be loved? 
as a single individual, the same goes for you. Just don't think of family, think of friends. Like, how can I better take care of my friends? If my friends and I, or if my, a good friend of mine and I were in a fight at some point with somebody else, could I defend him or her? Could I encourage them? Could I mend a piece of their clothing or something along those lines? It's looking for these deliberate ways to steward and cultivate not only ourselves, but our friends. Because as we interact with others and as we share the love of Christ in our practical doings, we are also cultivating and we are stewarding not only the relationship, but the people themselves. And so stop thinking in terms of this narrative of you exist solely as a sexual prospect. Think of yourself as more than that, because you are more. You are a mental and physical and spiritual creature. You are capable of art. You are capable of writing. Or if you're not capable of any of those things, find what you are capable of cultivate that and find the things that you're bad at and learn how to love doing them and get good at them and that's part of the journey as a person is we're not just human beings we're human becomings we exist in a constant state of going from point a to point b we exist in a constant state of i'm really not good at something to i'm not bad at this to you know what i'm halfway decent at this to you know what i'm actually pretty all right at this and there's a joy in and there's a joy in that cultivation and there's a joy in coming alongside other people and having other people come come alongside you purely in terms of friendship even and that's ultimately this is a little bit of a scattered episode i'm sorry but really again i'm just going to keep on circling back to this your existence and your worth is not tied to whether or not you are either a sexual prospect or married. That's not your value and that's not your So I think that's all I have for you today. Um, this is something that a whole lot more people struggle with than they realize. Even in marriage, we, we think of ourselves in these terms. But start trying to think of how better can you take care of the people who are in your life? Start thinking about how you can better be a functional and rounded off person. Think of yourself in terms of what can you improve upon, not so that other people can think of you in a particular way, but so that you can serve and love people better. All I have for you today is... Uh, I hope that this episode made sense to you and I hope that this conversation that we're having is encouraging. I really do. Please uh, reach out if you've got any suggestions or recommendations. And you know what? I completely forgot that I was going to tie this into what exactly the old code is. And I'm still working on defining exactly what that code is and uh, specificity. But the old code is just an idea which I snatched from a movie from the 1990s called Dragonheart. Now, and I'm going to flesh out why I chose this in the future. But effectively, the old code is a code which 
the nobility would take and have as a form of standard, which was to keep them accountable to the fact that there, there's a line in the film where the, uh, the villain basically says the king is above the code, to which the main character then says no one is above the code, especially the king. Now, in the movie, the old code is a knight is sworn to valor. Uh, his word speaks only truth. His blade defends the helpless. His might upholds the weak. His wrath undoes the wicked. And I just really liked that idea. I really liked the idea that we have something that we're being held accountable to. And I'm trying to work on my own definition that I would like to share with you guys as to what that old code is. So it kind of combined two of my loves, which is 1990s fantasy films with Sean Connery playing a dragon. If you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. And also pre-modernity. So that's what I'm riffing on in the old code. So uh, hopefully that doesn't disappoint you. Hopefully the realization that I'm a big old nerd is, uh, isn't a surprise at this point. But anyway, yeah, this has been the Old Code Podcast. I'm your host, The Professor. If you got any recommendations or anything you think you'd like to hear me talk about, or if you feel like you'd like to come on to the show, even drop me a line. Let me know. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Old Code, and I'll catch you next time.